0: Not I, but through Christ in me. Thank you for those songs. Good preparation for God's word this morning. You'll turn in your pew Bibles to page 1492. And after an introduction, we'll be reading... the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, verses 19 through 31. We'll get to that in just a moment. Dear people of God, Meriwether Lewis, along with William Clark, by orders of President Thomas Jefferson, were commissioned to search for a Northwest Passage from St. Louis, Missouri, on what was then known as the west side of the United States, nothing having been discovered west of St. Louis. And they were to find a route to the Pacific Ocean all the way in the far west. No detailed maps yet existed. It was all foreign territory, and Lewis and Clark were to survey that unknown land and collect data concerning its topography, plant life, animal life, and its inhabitants it was a perilous journey of discovery, covering some 8,000 miles with a variety of obstacles along the way. During those two and a half years of 1805 and 1806, it's worth reading about if you enjoy history. But what struck me in reading a lengthy lengthy book on the subject, Undaunted Courage, by Stephen Ambrose was a quote by Meriwether Lewis, written by Lewis in his journal, midway through that discovery, midway through that journey of discovery. And this is what he wrote. This day I completed my 31st year. It was Lewis's birthday, August 18, 1805. And Lewis figured he was halfway through his life's journey being that life expectancy in those days was shorter than it is now. And he goes on to say, I reflected that I had done but little, very little indeed, to further the happiness of the human race or to advance the information for the succeeding generation. I view with regret the many hours I have spent in indolence, and now sorely feel the want of that information which those hours would have given me had they been judiciously expended. And he goes on, realizing that he couldn't recover the past and do it over, and so he says, I dash from me the gloomy thought and resolve in the future to redouble my exertions and at least endeavor in the future to live for mankind as I have heretofore lived only for myself. Now, Lewis was a a humanist, and he wasn't guided by Christian principles. By his own admission, he lived for himself. But it led me to think, as a Christian, as we reflect on our lives, yours, mine, mine, And I'm sure we all take time to do that from time to time. No matter where you are on that journey of life, do you ever reflect and ask yourself, how am I spending my time? What am I doing to advance the kingdom of God, to tell others about the love of Jesus Christ that I have in my heart? Am I using my talents and God-given gifts? And we get surveys as a congregation from time to time, asking those kinds of questions? Am I using my talents and God-given gifts as, as kingdom citizens to be a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are all my thoughts and my actions in line with loving God first and my neighbor as myself? Am I making a difference in my family's life or in the lives of those whom I know that I interact with each and every day. Or do we sometimes say, because of the immorality prevalent in in society today and and the many other anti-Christian and anti-biblical decisions being made in high places, do we figure, well, I'll just hide and kind of isolate myself and hope it'll all go away. And then, is much of my life as we continue reflecting as much of my life, even though I don't, don't want to admit it, focused on myself and my own advancement, doing my own thing, even though I'm good at hiding those feelings from others. Some phrases that are very prevalent today that I don't really like, the phrase, take it easy, have fun, don't work too hard, stay out of trouble, have a good one, they don't amount to much those kinds of sayings and phrases. And sometimes we're guilty, speaking for myself, convincing ourselves that we're very busy. However, I often wonder, busy doing what? We're good at self-deception, if we'll admit it. We're good at self-justification. And so were some of the the characters in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Let's read it. 1492, Luke 16, 19 through 31. Meaning of verse 19. There was a rich man In Hades where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First thing we notice is that this parable is kind of smack in the middle of other parables and other teachings of Jesus. And a parable, as we, most of us have learned from an early age, is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I think that definition falls a bit short. Certainly it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, but that earthly story also contains some very pointed lessons for us living our lives today. Even if those lessons aren't always spelled out in detail. Now, many of the parables that we find in chapter 15 and and around these teachings of Jesus are what we categorize as kingdom parables. And in our Wednesday morning ladies' Bible study this past spring, we looked at many of them, and a kingdom parable points out some characteristics of the kingdom, which is both, as we have heard many sermons on a kingdom which is both present and not yet. And the kingdom, as you know, is acknowledging God's rule and promoting his rule in the world and in our lives right now and for all eternity when we're called home. And kingdom parables point out how we, as kingdom citizens, ought to be living right now giving glory to God for adopting us as his children through Jesus' death on the cross and making us participants in that kingdom. That's a lot of theology, but it's very important, very important in our lives. And that's the basis of our faith and how we are to live during our journey here on earth. Now, if you recall some of those previous parables that we find in chapter 15, you'll see the parable of the lost sheep. We've all read that, I'm sure. We'll see the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son. And the basic teaching in those parables is that the kingdom is open to all and that God is a loving and a forgiving father who searches for all those who are lost or might have abused his grace and lovingly accepts those who return. And often a parable will be directed at a particular person or a group of people with some very pointed teaching for reflection. Okay, let's look at the parable briefly this morning of the rich man and Lazarus. A parable of the kingdom, pointing out some lessons about kingdom living. Now, I don't know about you, but this parable of the rich man and Lazarus is kind of scary. Most of the parables usually don't leave us with a scare and some fear. And we probably rea- react to some of these other parables. I get it. God searches, God finds. God rejoices when the prodigal son comes back. We live happily ever after. All is good. But they don't always leave us afraid and scratching our heads and, and con- confronting us with, with maybe having to make some drastic changes in our lives. And this parable might just be pointing God's finger at us. You and me. This parable is about life and death. It's about heaven and hell. It calls us to some very serious self-evaluation, I think. In short, it confronts us with the question, am I living the kingdom citizen life, or do I have to make some changes? Let's look at a couple of the characters and see if we can identify with any of them. First, there's the rich man. Seems like he's the main character in the story, in the parable. And a lot is said about him. He's dressed in purple, a royal color of the day, fine linen, referring to the undergarments that were soft against his skin rather than the coarse, scratchy feeling of burlap and other rough material. He lived in luxury every day. He had no earthly needs. He ate sumptuously, lived expensively, probably lived in a gated community, the million dollar life, life of the rich and famous. Something more about the rich man. He dies, and he's buried, probably had a long obituary written about him listing all of his accomplishments. And he's probably laid in the richest of tombs with the other well-to-do friends who have died before him. Long profession, out of town to the place of burial. However, he goes to hell. He goes to hell. Where he's in torment, a place of severe physical and mental suffering. And there's more. He's in agony because of the fire that threatens to burn him continually. Not a comforting picture. Something else about the rich man. He knows and he recognizes Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation. So we can assume that the rich man is a Jew, probably a faithful observer of the Torah, Probably a faithful synagogue attender. Maybe he even tithes, observes the Ten Commandments, probably follows them to the letter of the law as the Pharisees have interpreted them. And he knows Abraham. He knows Abraham, and he knows Abraham has the power to relieve his suffering. And one last thing he has feelings. He has feelings. He has compassion for his five brothers back on earth. And he wants Lazarus, whom he ignored every day on earth, probably stepped over him on his way into his luxurious house with no feelings of guilt. He wants Lazarus to go down to earth and let them know, his five brothers, that the way they're living is going to lead to the same torment That the rich man is in? Hell, eternal punishment, damnation, eternal fire, separation from God, pain and agony. Now what's the rich man's sin? What did he do wrong? Why is he in hell? Is it because he's rich? No. Jesus never condemned being rich, although it comes with its challenges. Is it because he wore nice clothes and lived in luxury? No. Jesus never condemned those earthly items, although they come with their challenges as well. As Luke 12 says, life is more than food and the body more than clothes. His sin, or sins shall I say, for which he is judged unworthy to go to Abraham's bosom, Old Old Testament language for heaven, his sin for which he is judged unworthy to go to Abraham's bosom is, first of all, his stepping over or avoiding or going around the beggar Lazarus whom he likely encountered every day. It's his first sin. And there's an irony here. And the irony here is that he lacked compassion for Lazarus, but he did have compassion for his five brothers. So is that his sin? Yeah, certainly. It's one of them for sure. Jesus wants us to have compassion for the poor. The Bible says the poor you will always have with you. And I think the important word there is with as much as the government wants to try to erase poverty and initiate all kinds of programs to eliminate poverty, the Bible says the poor are always going to be with us. There are 2,000 references to the poor in Scripture. Why? Why does the Bible emphasize the poor? Because the poor and their plight often point us to Jesus. Jesus said, as you do it to the least of these, you have done it unto me. Proverbs says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. So the first sin of this rich man is that he had no compassion for the poor. That's kind of self-evident. The second sin that I believe the rich man is guilty of is that he self-justified himself. He self-justified himself. He had the distorted notion that those who were blessed like he was had God's favor. He figured he was righteous because of his heritage, his lineage, his legalistic observance of the law, his status in the community, and God's reward for him to him for living that way was his wealth. And he justified stepping over Lazarus each day because he judged Lazarus as someone who hadn't lived like him and was destined to be a beggar because God's favor was not with him. The beggar probably had no lineage, maybe a sin background, judged by the rich man, worthless in God's sight. And so the rich man was justified in saying, well, God thinks he's worthless, so I'm going to look at him as worthless as well. See what's happening? The rich man kind of self-justified himself, looked at his own life and said, I've been blessed. God must really love me. Recently, while leaving Grand Rapids after a hospital call, Chris and I, to get on 131 South off of Pearl Street, had to go under the highway and then turn left onto the entrance ramp after the light turned green. And lying there on the sidewalk, underneath the 131 overpass, Not more than 15 feet from our car was a man sleeping soundly on the sidewalk, covered by a ragged blanket, his earthly belongings in a plastic bag next to him. And we looked, and we waited for the light to turn green. We made our left hand turn onto the 131 south ramp, and we headed home. Did we have compassion? Sure. Did we stop? No. We judged it was too dangerous, had other things to do. Did we rationalize our behavior of not stopping and being a good Samaritan, thinking that perhaps there are so many homeless? What what could we do at that moment anyway, for one? I don't think those thoughts necessarily entered our minds. We didn't overthink the situation just went on our way. And we've all seen that kind of thing and probably went through the same emotions. And maybe we even justified our behavior. After all, can't give them money, not them. They'll just use it to buy drugs or alcohol. Why don't they just get a job or go to the local mission to get help? They obviously haven't been blessed like we have thinking for myself of course. I worked hard for what I've done and even with the economy the way it is, we're still able to make it, we've been blessed. And besides, I give to missions, send an occasional donation to Guiding Light and Mel Trotter. Just making a point, just making a point. Are we sometimes looking at everything we have, our tangible items and perhaps thinking that they are God's blessings and favor for our hard work. Am I being too judgmental? Self justification, rationalizing our behavior, sometimes going against what the scriptures are actually saying to you and me. Third, The rich man's third sin, if you will. He missed the spirit of the law and the prophets. He missed the spirit of the law and the prophets. When he asks Abraham to send Lazarus down to to warn the rich man's brothers of their impending doom, Abraham states that they have Moses and the prophets. What's the lesson there for you and me? I think it's this. God's word is supremely important because it points us to Jesus. I've said it many times. The entire word of God points to Jesus. The Old Testament points to his coming and the New Testament testifies to his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and his coming again to judge the living and the dead. Did you see that almost hidden reference to Jesus' resurrection in that parable, verse 31. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man missed the spirit of the law, a relationship with one another and with God. As I said, he probably kept the law, kept the Ten Commandments, All 430-some of them that the Pharisees used to interpret those Ten Commandments. Probably went to the synagogue. Maybe he even tithed. Did everything in his mind that he thought was right, but he missed the spirit of the law. A spirit of the law that tells us to reach out to others. A spirit of the law that points us to the Savior. The parable is particularly aimed at the Pharisees. Verse 14, the previous chapter says, The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable In God's sight. They were hypocrites, talked one way, lived another. By your fruits you shall be known, says the Bible. The rich man missed the spirit of the law, letting himself be led by the Spirit. He was guilty of of what's called selective application of God's Word. Picking and choosing what you want to hear, what you want to act on, what you want to believe. Just doing enough to feel he wasn't sinning, so he thought. Just doing what's convenient. He was spiritually blind. He looked, but he saw not. Is there a Pharisee among us? And then there's Lazarus, just another face in the crowd, an invisible poor person who disappears into the background of folks who are living the blessed life. But in the afterlife, the first have become last, and the last have become first. Commentators call us, that's the title of the sermon, commentators call this the great reversal, the great reversal. Jesus wants to give us a solid understanding of this great reversal. The rich man is nameless. Lazarus is named. Name means God helps. They both die. Death is the great equalizer. The rich man goes to hell. Lazarus goes to heaven. Why? Because he's poor and a beggar? Do all poor beggars go to heaven? No. Reading between the lines, the insinuation is that the beggar had faith in God, meditating on his God each day. It's a parable, don't forget. The rich man is told when he asks for Lazarus to go back and talk to his brothers, they have Moses and the prophets. We must assume that Lazarus knew Moses and the prophets and believed that a better life awaited him. As Hebrews 11 says, who through faith, talking about the ancients there, who through faith were looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, we don't want to read more into this parable than what Jesus intended to teach. However, as I said, the basic message is clear. It's directed at the Pharisees, but it's a, a mirror for us as well. We've been given the gospel We've been given Jesus. We've been given his examples of what our ministry to the poor ought to look like, what compassion is all about. Is there a message in Lazarus's life that you and I can identify with? Maybe not his physical condition. However, maybe in his miracle of restoration, Being restored into God's family. Eating at the banqueting table in heaven. We were once, the Bible says, without hope. Without spiritual resources. Lying in the misery of unforgiven sin. And Jesus came along, was rich in mercy. And crowned me with his righteousness. A pilgrim was I and a wandering. In the cold night of sin I did roam. When Jesus, the kind shepherd, found me, and now I am on my way home. He restoreth my soul when I am weary. He giveth me strength day by day. He leads me beside the still waters. He guards me each step of the way. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. All the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and I shall feast at his table, spread for me. You were once in darkness, says Ephesians, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise as the rich man but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Empathy instead of apathy. Compassion instead of rationalization. Reaching out and taking a risk instead of playing it safe. Setting priorities instead of using, I'm so busy as an excuse to do nothing. I'm not negating raising a family, instructing children, taking care of personal needs, and the household of God. You're all doing well there. However, we can't become complacent. We can't become spiritually blind, self-justifying, and being biblically selective only when it suits us. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He loves you. And He wants nothing more than for you to be His faithful child. The Pharisees didn't want to listen to this parable. It it interrupted their comfortable lifestyle, it blew, blew holes in their theology. They were comfortable in their lifestyles, comfortable with the status quo. Leave us alone. We're self-sufficient. We have it all figured out. Don't upset the apple cart. They were complacent, indifferent. And their way to put it all out of their minds was eventually to crucify Jesus. But that wasn't the end of the story. In three days, he rose again and is alive today. Let's pray. Dwell in me, O blessed spirit, how I need your help divine. In the way of life eternal, keep, O keep, this heart of mine. Grant to me your sacred presence, then my faith will ne'er decline. Comfort me and help me onward. Fill with love this heart of mine. Dwell in me, O blessed spirit, gracious teacher, friend divine, for the kingdom work that calls me, O prepare this heart of mine. Amen.